Welcome back. This is another motherfucking solo podcast. And I'm going to kick this off with some kind of exciting news because from the next episode, we're going to be on YouTube. In fact, I think we may even do a live stream. So we'll be able to see things like comments. We'll be able to respond to you. We'll just be able to fucking chit chat, you know. However, I couldn't do it for this episode because when you enable live stream on YouTube, they're like, okay, well, now it's going to be 24 hours, then you'll be allowed. So I was all excited and then I was like, oh. So it'll be next time. It'll be next time where you can not only listen to the sweet, sweet sounds of myself and Greg, but you will also be able to see our face holes talking. <laughs> I just, I've never been someone that watched YouTube. Um, and I think it's because... Instagram and, you know, back in the day, Facebook have always got the better of me. And recently, you know, a little TikTok. So I spend all my time there. I've never ventured onto the YouTube platform. I'm just like, ah, social media sucked enough of my soul. I don't have anything left. Um, but I know a lot of people watch it. And I think it would be cool to be in that space. You know? You know? Okay. Anyway, moving on. So I know that you guys came for the CrossFit. And even though you stayed for the sex, you came for the CrossFit and everybody was super pumped up because when I was talking about confidence and mindset last year, I started talking about training and everyone was like, holy fuck, this is me. This is me. She is me. We are the same. And so I wanted to give you some insight into being a competitive athlete and being a competitive CrossFitter and, and just kind of striving to be fucking better in general. Um, and what it kind of takes, not only physically, but psychologically, right? It's the physiological and psychological element of it. And to start, just know that being competitive isn't, isn't only for the athletes that are like, I want to make it to the games, man. Like, that's my dream. It's also for the people that just want to be better, you know, the people that want to realize some, if not all, of their potential. And for the people that want to get the most out of their training and out of their fucking life. So I'm going to kick it off with a little bit of a rundown of my background. And, and it's just because I want you to understand who I am, where I came from, and maybe some of the advantages that I had when I came into the sport. Because the reality is, is that a lot of the athletes that you see in CrossFit, um, they weren't, you know, breakthrough athletes. They were already very mature athletes in terms of their athlete or a competitive age. They'd come from other sports that had a sporting background. They'd been training for a huge portion of their lives. Um, and I just think that that is something that you got to remember, you know, genetics and lifestyle or upbringing do play a pretty big role in your ability to be competitive in the sport. So I'm going to give you a quick run through of my upbringing and I don't I fucking I hate telling them like, oh, how did you get into CrossFit? Or like, oh, did you play sports as a kid? I'm like, fucking, that's so boring. Like if I'm ever on a podcast where they're going to ask that question, I'm just like, oh, can you, if I just tell you, can I email it to you beforehand? You can just like <laughs> talk through it as part of my intro. It's just fucking, it's just boring. I've said it so many times. I don't think anybody's really interested in that stuff anyway. Like, is it really relevant information? Like, let's talk about something interesting. Have better questions, anything. <laughs> but here I am on my very own podcast giving you the who am I <laughs> fucking monologue. So let's begin. It was the year 1990, March 8th, a nice calm afternoon. <laughs> Okay, uh, I was born 
and I was born into a family that were pretty active. We weren't like big like sports fans. Like I'm, I don't have a team that I'm like, yeah, go team. Uh, we never really watched a lot of sports, but we were active. And, and I would have to say that I have to give the credit to my dad. My dad's always been a super active human being himself. He's a total gym rat, um, always trains, has always taken us out on outdoor adventures and activities and he was always the one that did all the hard yards with it you know like all the inconvenient shit that comes with like getting two young kids up onto a mountain to go skiing every day for a couple weeks every single year from like the age I was three getting the boat out so we can go wakeboarding in the summer fucking every single summer from like the age of like five so my dad did a lot of this did a lot of the hard yards to make us really active and man like I really appreciated that upbringing or appreciate that upbringing but uh, yeah, I've been skiing since I was really young. I've been behind a boat since I was really young. I didn't play a lot of team sports. I was never into team sports. I was never competitive with sports. And my parents never pushed me to do it. You know, I think they were very much of the mindset of like, if you don't enjoy it and you don't want to do it, then fucking we're not going to make you. And I've always held that against them. I've always been like, why didn't you push me? I could have been so good. <laughs> I could have been amazing. Imagine how good at CrossFit I would have been if you just fucking made me stick with gymnastics or stick with judo or fucking whatever. But you know, like... <laughs> I was like a 10 or 11 year old kid when I was like, I don't want to do this. So it's like fucking to my parents. I'm like, fair enough, man. (laughs) I would not want to deal with 11 year old me being like, but I don't want to go to gymnastics. So I did a little uh, judo from about the age of seven or eight to 10. And same thing with gymnastics. I did gymnastics a little bit longer because I continued to do it with high school and competed a little bit through high school, mostly because I just wanted to hang out with my cool gymnastics friends and go to cool gymnastics competitions and wear cool gymnastics leotards. Um, I was not in the popular group at school. Uh, so that was kind of my sporting, that was the degree of my competitive sporting years. Not a lot. I was just dancing. That was my thing. I really liked dancing. That was my main after school activity that I actually enjoyed. And I think I wanted to go to, you know, and it's not that I didn't enjoy the other sports. It's just that I didn't want to go to them. I don't think I had a lot of friends in the groups or in the classes. I hadn't been doing it for very long, so I hadn't made those connections. And like, it was always a bit of like, oh, I don't want to go. Even though I enjoyed it when I was there and I liked it and I I would get better at it. I just, yeah, I think I was just a difficult kid with some of that stuff. Anyway, I did dance. And then um, coming towards the end of high school, I did a little bit of personal training. And in university, I actually snapped my ACL skiing. Um, so I had, most of my injuries have been like skiing or being fucking drunk at uni. Um, uni involved a lot of drinking and eating like shit. So I gained a lot of weight. Um, so simultaneously, that was when I stepped my ACL. I took a break from dancing uh, and I started seeing a personal trainer. And that was when rehabbing or prehabbing before surgery to get my anterior cruciate ligament reconstructed. And then I would, I was uh, rehabbing afterwards after the surgery. So I did a lot of personal training with that. And I already liked going to the gym and doing things like group fitness or when I was with, I would go with my stepmom to a personal trainer and I, 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 I liked that and it had been modeled for me all my life. Like some of my earliest childhood memories are being in the gym crash, <laughs> quite literally. So Les Mills is a really popular gym chain in New Zealand. It's a family. Um, my, my dad was friends with the family, you know, like that was the kind of like connection we had to the gym. Like we just fucking lived there. <laughs> so going to the gym seemed like a very natural part of everyday life in a way that you would take care of yourself and, and also part of your social circles. My dad would always be with his friends. Mum would always be with her friends. It was just what they did. And so I kind of started doing that through uni. And uh, after uni, I had just seen a little bit of CrossFit and I was always a bit like, ah, I, I don't want to be that buff, you know, like I want to be toned and strong, but I don't want to be that buff. And I hadn't quite gotten into that place yet mentally to be like, yeah, I really, I fucking see the 
what that body is capable of and I appreciate that I was sort of a bit like oh but I want to look like this and I want to be toned so anyway it took me a little while to get into it but when I was 21 I started CrossFit and I had a lot of advantages coming into CrossFit having been really active and strong as a kid so a couple of examples of me when I was a kid even though I wasn't super competitive but just being an active human being made me fit and fucking strong. Like I would go to, you know, school athletics would have school athletics day once a year or a couple times a year. And they would always be like, Oh wow, you're really like naturally gifted or talented or like you should join the fucking long jump team. (laughs) And I'd be like, yeah, no thanks. Um, but it was like, I seemed naturally gifted because I was an active kid outside of school. That was stuff that I, I did all the time. I would run and jump and sprint and do stuff that was physical and so relative to the other kids that weren't I looked really good um so that was something that just like kept coming up as a kid it was always like oh you're really you're just talented um and then I never really applied it in school but anyway the other thing that I remember is being really young and in primary school so I would have been like maybe seven or eight and there was this high window that was looking into the library at school and we were lined up outside the library waiting to go in and I remember hanging up with these two boys and they were jumping up onto this window ledge and uh, just hanging off by their fingertips and so I jumped up as well just because you know I want to show off and I did a pull-up like pulled myself up over that ledge ledge to look through the window and the boys couldn't do it and they were like what the fuck and I was like yeah that's right (laughs) so that was one thing that I remember I was like oh other people can't do that right and then um yeah, that I think that uh, the other one was, it was like my eighth or ninth birthday. And there's this video circulating somewhere amongst my family home videos of me running around at my birthday party in a bikini. It's like this red bikini. And I was ripped. Like I had a six pack and like these delts and biceps. Like <laughs> I just was, I literally was, you know how people say that kids are just like skin and bones I was muscle and bones like I was just I I wasn't stocky I was lean um so I just kind of always had that physicality I looked athletic I was an athletic kid even though I didn't play sports but I had that as part of my upbringing so when I came to CrossFit like I built strength and I built skill very quickly and being a dancer I was a very coordinated human being like I, I understood how my body moved I understood how it worked and I took on the feedback with regards to movement very very, very quickly. So, you know, my version of beginner's gains was accelerated because of that. A lot of people have beginner's gains where for the first six to 12 months, they experience a lot of personal best. They develop a lot of new skills and build a lot of strength and muscle. Um, Mine was like on steroids, not actually, but kind of, purely because I had this, uh, I guess this, this previous history of being active and strong. So I just came in with this strength. So um, I got into CrossFit and naturally people picked up on me having more strength and ability than other people typically do. And they were like, you got to compete. Like we want you on our team. Like we want a strong girl. We want you to do this competition. We want you to do this training. So I kind of naturally was drawn to that because people got really excited about it. So I started doing, um, first of all, Invictus training when I was in the US and i competed with a team at regionals and SoCal there and I wasn't you know a phenomenal athlete I was still pretty overweight as well like I you know I was fresh out of uni and I'd been eating and drinking like shit I was traveling a lot like I was just you know that was my those were my party years so um, I did not really look after myself however that was also the point where I started to really shift away from that lifestyle because it heavily impacted my training my ability to perform and feel good and do the things that I wanted to do 
So I moved a lot away from my friends that were drinking all the time and like eating like shit and not doing any exercise. And I was someone that really enjoyed being up and being able to hit the gym and hang out because I had a group of friends at the gym and that was really social for me. So um, I really enjoyed that part of CrossFit. Then my next competitive experience was accidentally, quote unquote, accidentally qualifying for the games in 2015. So I had been at regionals and then that was 2013. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was 2013. Maybe 2000. Yeah, 2013. Then in 2015, I'd been in Brisbane in Australia. I'd been training at CrossFit Rocks and... um, we had just a group of young people that were fit as fuck. And I think that was the first time where I realized that the people that you're around will essentially dictate the degree to which people can get fit. So the guy who owned the gym was a fucking maniac. <laughs> he was in like special special forces for the cops. And uh, he was so fit. Like one of those people that just like kind of blacks out every workout. <laughs> like you, if you talk to him or say something or look at him you're just like he's not really there (laughs) he would just go so deep into the pain cave that I couldn't I couldn't even understand how someone could train like that like he was just hardcore he was like he's like he was like David Goggins hardcore you know like it was just like wow that was that was that was a different level of intensity And so what happened is we had this trickle-down effect from him to all the other athletes, and there were a lot of young guys in there, Um, and then a couple of young girls, and then we happened to have uh, a couple of young gymnasts as well that had been super competitive, you know, national-level gymnasts. So we had this group of six people that were, like, young, had a lot of extra time, were in the gym a ton, and a lot of people with previously highly competitive backgrounds. So came into the sport and even though we were fairly new with a lot of experience, just competing in general. So what happened was we got into regionals in 24th place. And then at regionals, we came in third. So we qualified for the games that year. And um, the difference was that on the floor, we were super relaxed. We were super confident. We had a really good time. We communicated really, really well. We didn't take anything too seriously, but we also were really fucking good under pressure. And that's something that is really important as a competitor. If you do not perform well under pressure, when you're stressed out, whatever the fucking circumstance are, whether it's an emergency, whether someone suddenly has a fit standing next to you, whether you're in a car accident, whatever the situation is, when you have that opportunity for a fight or flight response, if you don't know how to keep your head on your shoulders, it's going to impact your ability to compete because competing is essentially deliberately putting yourself into a position where you're going to be in a fight or flight mode, okay? Like the stress is real. And we had people that were very experienced, okay? So we had the two national level gymnasts like I'd spoken about, um, myself who I I'd been, I think where my ability to perform and do well in terms of like being in a stressful environment came from was actually from dancing because I'd been performing in front of people pretty much all my life. So I'd done a lot of dance. I'd done a lot of theater and performing arts. Like I'd just been on stage in the spotlight. So when I'm on the floor competing, it feels pretty much exactly the same as it does when I'm performing, like in, in a dance or in a performance, whatever the fuck it is. 
So having the ability to perform well under pressure, in the spotlight, on the floor, on the stage, quote unquote stage, you if you don't have that, that's going to severely impact your ability to compete. And that was our advantage that year that we competed. And I'm not going to take away the fact that we were also pretty fit and pretty good at, at just exercising quickly, but um, we were just very, very composed as a team on the floor. Um, so that was, that was a really big... Yeah, I, and I know I've already said it in many different words, but that was a, a big point of difference for us and our team. Uh, so that was like the first time that I was competitive to a degree where I was like, oh, I, I think I really like this. But I'd always considered myself, I guess, the coach, and I'd never really pushed myself to be competitive. One, because I didn't really want to have the responsibility of having to try. I didn't really want to push myself and not only have to try, but also have to find out if I was if I actually had what it took. Um, so that was part of it. And then the other part of it is that I just didn't really think I was that good. Um, and I still, still kind of struggle with that. But I think what I've come to terms with is that it doesn't really require you to be that good. You just have to be really fucking consistent. And, um, lucky for me, I have this background where it sets me up with an advantage and then with consistent exposure to intensity and getting uncomfortable, I can do quite well. So, after 2014 or 2015, sorry, I had a back injury, which I am going to put out a back injury program, which I'm actually really excited about. I've had this stuff written down and I've been sending it to people for years and I've realized that I actually need to like give this to more people <laughs> and tell people what I did because I think a lot of people will get injured and then come back to CrossFit and don't really know how the fuck to get back into CrossFit, right? So that's that's the back rehab program that's going to be coming out. So I did that. It was six months of rehab and then six months of rebuilding up to being able to compete again. And I competed at Torian in 2016. And I don't know where I came. I think I was like, was I top 10? I was somewhere in the top 10, I'm pretty sure. And uh, anyway, I, I left that and I went and had a meeting with Matt Swift who used to run CrossFit Brisbane. He is, for those of you not in Australia, considered the godfather of CrossFit in Australia. He was one of the first, not the first affiliate, but one of the very early affiliates in Australia. Um, very intelligent human being. And I was lucky enough to have him as a mentor because I was on seminar staff and he was one of the first members of seminar staff in Australia and a flow master, which is what we call, I guess, the uh, managers for the weekend in a way. The, the directors, the leaders for the weekend. And I reached out to him. He'd been a sounding board for me previously with some issues that I'd had with work and just people in my life that he also knew. So he was really useful for me as just someone to reach out to for advice. And I decided that I kind of wanted to qualify for regionals. It wasn't even that I wanted to be competitive. I just decided that I want to make it to regionals, which I guess would be the equivalent of saying, I want to make it to sanctionals. Uh, not even sanctionals anymore. I want to make it to semifinals, maybe quarterfinals, eh, maybe. Nah, I reckon maybe more equivalent to like, I, I want to go to semifinals. Like I think I was probably already in the quarterfinals. Like I was in the open. I would get a like top 400, I think in the open. Like that's kind of where I sat naturally just with the base level of fitness that I had. I don't remember where I finished. I think in 2014 was my best finish. It was about 130th in in Southern California which was the region that I was in and then the next year when I was in Australia the 
2015 or whatever year we went to the games I think I was top 200 maybe but I dropped down a lot after hurting my back so I was back out in like the 300s or 400s but that was just an indication of kind of where I was naturally so I wasn't trying to go from like you know three three thousandth or one thousandth into the top 100 I was like I'm in four top top at least top 400 trying to get to at the time top 30 so I talked to Swifty and that kind of blew my mind that was when I first heard you have to assume the identity and that changed everything for me assuming the identity of a CrossFit Games athlete um, meant that I I basically overhauled everything that I did I didn't just apply myself to become a regionals athlete or a semifinals athlete I applied myself to fucking be at the CrossFit Games vying for a spot on the podium that was the new mindset and that was what I put on and I wore that for about three years before I went back to the CrossFit Games in 2019 so that was a really significant change in my behavior that was yeah prompted by the idea of hey if you just act like the person you want to be you're going to have a pretty good chance of becoming that person if you're someone that you are right now, like if you're the person you are right now, just trying to get somewhere where you've never been, you're not going to make it. You have to be the person that's already there to get there. So it's like, you know, any goal that you have, if it's just you trying to reach and strive towards that thing and trying to do these little changes and implement these little things to try and just grab that, that thing that's just within reach. Like that's a really hard thing to do because you're being yourself that does the things that you do that gets the results that you have right now, trying to make a couple of changes to get different results, but you're still who you are. It, it actually just doesn't work. If, however, you become the person that has the results that you want, meaning you behave in the same way that they do, you do the things that they do, you fucking eat, sleep, and think like they do, and you apply yourself like they do, there's a much better chance that you're going to get the results that you want. So assuming the identity was a huge shift for me. Alongside of that really big shift was the other big shift, which was regionals for me was essentially within my grasp. So, and I know that, you know, it's top 30. Like I still think that was a really significant jump, but I think Swifty saw, probably saw more in me than I saw in myself, um, which was really helpful to have someone that really had that view of you, you know, that belief in you. So he also said to me, hey, regionals is within your reach like if you just kind of keep doing what you're doing which is you're training well you're training every day you're being competitive like you've you've been to the games you've you're surrounded by a great community if you just keep doing what you're doing like I just worked my way back to Torian after being injured for six months and he's like if you just keep doing what you're doing you're gonna get there you know it's like someone who's got 10 strung together toast bar and they want to get 15 it's like man if you just keep doing what you're doing you're probably gonna get 15 but it's a totally different thing if you go, I've got 10 and I want to be able to do 45 unbroken. It's like, okay, that's a big, big leap. That's, that's outside of your current like reach. And that was essentially what he said to me. He's like, fuck regionals. He didn't use those words. <laughs> he said it in a much better way. 
But he essentially said, don't even worry about regionals. Fucking try and get to the games. Go to the games. You want to be good? Try to get to the games. That needs to be your goal. That's way outside of your reach. And that's going to require some really big fucking action. And if you don't have those big scary goals, you will never ever take that big scary action. And that's what the goal serves. That's that's the purpose of the goal. The goal requires you to do more than what you would have done. So if you have small goals, you're not going to do a whole lot extra. If you have big fuck off scary goals, all of a sudden that should kind of terrify you into doing a lot more than what you would have previously done. And I think the thing that you have to understand with this is that people are like, well, I'm never going to make it to the games. Why would I make, make that my goal? It actually doesn't fucking matter if you accomplish the goal. Because I would much rather strive towards a really big goal and get three quarters of the way there and then fail than to make a goal that's like a, th- a quarter of that goal and get it and accomplish 25 more percent of what I currently or what I had been, you know? It's like, hey, shoot for the moon and if you miss, at least you fucking land among the stars. Um, There's some really cool quotes around that stuff, you know? It's like, if I fail, let it be to a lofty mountain. It's like, man, have bigger goals. Be really scared of the thing that you're trying to do because it needs to push you to do more than you have ever done before in your life. If you keep doing what you're doing and you're striving for small goals that are within your reach, you're probably going to apply yourself for three months, maybe six months at best. But this goal pushed me to apply myself for fucking years. And that's what it has to be. That's what it takes. So whenever you think about being competitive, and this is specifically for actually being like uh, quarterfinals, semifinals, or qualifying for the CrossFit Games. If you want to be that level of competitive, you have to be in it for a minimum of five years to even begin to see your competitive potential. So like, let's talk about athletes that have broken through and like kind of straight off the bat, like the Tia Claire Toomey's of the world. Now, I would argue that she was not an overnight success, even though when she got to the games, she started doing really well. She'd been competing in CrossFit out in Australia for a while and been doing fucking well. Like she'd been doing some really amazing stuff. It just took a while for her to get to that like international field. However, not only had she also been doing some of the hard yards in Australia prior to getting to the games before we saw her on the big screens and suddenly we're like, fuck, she's fucking on the podium. Holy crap, first try. But she'd been an athlete her entire life. And that's why I was telling you about my background. She came in as a very well-matured athlete. Your athlete age is really important with regards to your ability or your capacity to do well in competition. You have to know yourself incredibly well. You have to know how you train. You have to know what your strengths and weaknesses are. You have to go through the, the rite of passage of like just being an athlete and there's things that you learn around self-doubt and hesitating yourself you learn how to be confident you learn how to apply yourself you learn routine you know that the reward comes from the sacrifice there's all these lessons that you have to learn on this journey of becoming a mature athlete and that doesn't happen in a couple of years like anyone who's like oh I'm gonna apply myself for 12 years and see how well I can do competitively it's like (laughs) fucking good luck mate (laughs) see ya 
because you need a long time to go through those lessons and come out the other end as a better version of yourself and someone that can actually compete. And athletes like Tia Claire and even myself included, like, and I wouldn't say that I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not Tia Claire to me. <laughs> That's for sure. But we had advantages. We had this background that it set us up for success. So you, you have to consider that and that as well as genetics. You know, it's like there's, there's no way you can say that they don't play a part. And even though they're not the be all and end all, they definitely play a part. It's definitely an advantage. And if you're going to be the most competitive person in, out on the field, then you're going to be up against people who have those advantages. So you better be prepared for that. Anyway, five years. Five years is what I say is kind of the minimum. Um, and along that road, you're going to want to quit you're going to want to stop. So you better be ready to just know that it's like, okay, well, I'm just doing this for five years. And five years may only get you to begin to scratch the surface of what you are capable of competitively. Because five years kind of gets you to meet the bare minimum requirement of like, you kind of are at the bar. You're not passing the bar yet though, but you're there. So that will get you to realize your a, a lot of your skill um, in terms of, gymnastics, building strength, building volume, building efficiency. And it will also get you to the point where you've realized a pretty good percentage of your maximum strength um, and power as well along with that. So in terms of weightlifting, like you can pick up a, an immature weightlifter or a rookie weightlifter like out of a crowd of people compared to like the, the master or the advanced lifter because you just got to go through time of lifting in order to build that skill like it's a skill and it's hard and building strength around that stuff takes time so five years is and it's not a scientific number of t like years it, it's what I've observed from people who do CrossFit that do it consistently that have a, a good lifestyle and diet outside of that and that are striving to be better and you know work towards doing things like RX workouts um, so Five years of doing RX workouts is what I would say, not not the time that it takes to go from scale to RX. Like you need to pretty much be doing all workouts RX for five years. Th that's what I would probably, I guess, um, prescribe to anyone who's like, I want to be competitive. It's like, man, you got to be doing RX workouts for five years um, and doing the competitive training. So that is like the... I guess that's maybe the entry point to being a competitor. And I think the nice thing about five years is that it's a long time. It is a commitment. And if you're not willing to make that time commitment or you get a year in and you're like, oh, I think I need a break. It's like, well, okay, but you're going to take a break on that goal. Like you're going to be going not necessarily backwards, but that five-year time period, you take two or three months off, it's now five years and three months. You take six months off, it's now five years and six months. That includes injuries. You know, like... As much as I know people can 100% recover from injuries because I did and I became a better and stronger athlete because of it, it definitely takes fucking time. Like, sorry, but it does. It takes time and you need to spend that time properly ensuring that you fully recover from that injury and you can begin to train again. And if you don't take that time, you'll actually pay a much bigger price, a much heftier price. So you got to take the time off to recover if you do get injured. And that kind of brings me to... The other outside factors that play a part in terms of being a competitor, you have to be doing all of the one percenters. So I spoke about assuming the identity and striving for the bigger goal. 
And what that should do to your brain is go, holy fuck, everything I do counts. Everything fucking matters. You can't go out and just drink with your mates every weekend. You can't eat whatever the fuck you want. You can't stay up all night on goddamn TikTok (laughs) and not sleep. You just can't. You can't miss training sessions. You can't train and slack off. And it happens. I'm not going to like tell you that, you know, every single athlete is perfect. I certainly wasn't perfect. But you have to apply yourself knowing that you got to do everything and, and everything counts. And if you underestimate the value of the one percenters, you're doing yourself a disservice. So everything, including training, consistency in training, that's important. It's not just training max volume for six months. It's training like appropriate volume, the maximum recoverable dose. That is so important. The maximum recoverable dose. Your gen pop crossfitters, they need the minimum effective dose. Your competitive crossfitters need the maximum recoverable dose. So the most volume and intensity that you can tolerate So if you can't recover from it and come back and train the next day, you might be a little bit sore or a little bit tired. That's okay. But if you are literally beat up and you are dropping your intensity and you are starting to get niggles or you're stressed out or whatever it is, that's not the right dose for you. You need to dial it back. Okay. So it's, it's totally relative to the individual training consistency. Your food, your food has to be really, really good. You got to be eating whole foods and you got to be eating a whole lot of whole foods. Like just the quantity of food you need to eat is really important. And then stress and sleep. Stress and sleep are so significant because I think a lot of people come into like CrossFit and want to compete and they have like a family and a crazy stressful job. And I'm like, hey, I don't think this is going to go well. (laughs) You cannot be a stressed out human being and try to compete because I'm telling you right now, it's not going to be a happy ending. I was a CrossFit coach. That was my job. I was a CrossFit coach part-time. And then on the weekends, I used to fly around and do seminars. And that was all I did. So outside of that time, I wasn't responsible for a business. I didn't even have a boyfriend or a partner. Like I was single. I had no kids. I just had friends. And I had the gym and that was all I did. When I wasn't on the clock, I had no responsibilities. That is a very, very different story to where I'm at now when I'm running a business and it never stops. It is really, really hard to balance work and life when life takes a significant percentage of your mental time and energy. So when I was not owning or running a business and I was just working part-time like that was the ultimate environment for training and and with regards to stress like I didn't I didn't even know what stress was man (laughs) busy for me was like I might coach like I think the some of the busy weeks was like 15 to 20 coach CrossFit classes and then I might travel for a seminar but it's like I would never work between the hours of like 8 a.m and maybe 4 or 5 (laughs) p.m I would just have the whole day to just like hang out at the gym and I just wouldn't go home I was just I would just be at the gym I'd just hang out and it wasn't that I was training for like eight hours a day but I was just there I just didn't have to worry about anything 
And that's kind of the ultimate environment. And I'm not saying that you couldn't do it working, running a business, having family. I'm just saying that those things don't fucking help. (laughs) And there are some incredible athletes that do it and like hats off to them. But I think a lot of those athletes had done a lot of the hard yards before they got to that point where they were running businesses or had families or other responsibilities. So it's like, you know, the Rob Fortes of the world. He runs a whole lot of businesses. He has a family and he still competes, but his best like years for building himself as an athlete there they were like five years ago you know like that's when he built himself he's he can just maintain and he's still a competitive motherfucker you know makes you angry he's so good (laughs) but it's because he did all the building and all the maturing as an athlete a long time ago before he had that stuff you know so that's something to consider I made my whole world revolve around training Like I went tunnel vision and it's something that I say now where, you know, people ask me if I'm competitive now or if I want to compete as an individual. And I'm like, I don't know if I have that same tunnel vision anymore. Like I was pretty good at that in my twenties and I'm in my thirties now. And I just, I don't think it had, it doesn't sit on the same, it doesn't sit in the same spot on my priority list anymore. Um, And it's not to say that I couldn't make it. Uh, it. It's just, there's so many other things that my life that you know my life revolves around and it would be really hard to dial that back to just training again. It would take a lot more sacrifice now than it did then. I didn't have as much to sacrifice for training and to be competitive then. But yeah, my whole world revolved around CrossFit. I would wake up in the morning and I would journal about training. I would um I would go to bed every night with like eye mask and earplugs on and like I would never go out drinking. I used to have a housemate that used to drink a fair bit and was super social which was awesome and I liked being social and I liked partying but it just didn't fit in anymore. It, it wasn't worth it. So as much as people think that you have to sacrifice some of those things because of my goal, because of how much I needed to do, any possible I guess deviation from the plan felt like the biggest sacrifice. You know that phrase that's like, if you don't sacrifice what you want, if you don't sacrifice for what you want, what you want becomes the sacrifice. And I felt that every day. And that was that was it. That that was the kind of equation. It was like training plus recovery equals your fitness. Your environment plays a massive factor on that your mindset in terms of your, I guess, I guess your long-term goals or your long-term perspective on what you want and why you're doing it, like they play a big, big factor. You you have to really be in it because you want to do some big things and because you have some big goals. So um, that stuff is all kind of the basics. It's like, hey, you got five years, you got to be a mature athlete, you got to have good strength, you got to be eating the right food and your stress and your sleep have to be fucking sorted. Like work life cannot impact training. And then the ability to just keep showing up and just doing it. Like, and I'm not telling you that I had an easy time showing up and doing it or that other athletes do. I think that there's this false sense of like, oh, they're just really good at that. They can just fucking beat themselves down every day and they love the punishment. Bullshit. Fucking bullshit. They suffer just as much as you and I. They hear the thoughts and they feel the desire to procrastinate just as much as you and I. But they push themselves 
to do it fucking anyway. They hear those thoughts, they feel those feelings, and they know that they are going to choose the thing that allows them to become a better athlete rather than the convenient, easy choice that means that they don't improve each day. I think something else that's important with the five-year timeline is that there's no real arbitrary timeline for like when you're going to accomplish things. So five years is like what I call kind of the prerequisite. It's like, hey, just assume it's going to be five years minimum just to get to the, just to start to scratch the surface, like I said before. Um, I think when you can start thinking in terms of like multiple years, you know, five plus years, it's like it gets rid of any of those timelines that are like, okay, in two years, in 24 months, I'm going to be here. And then um, a year after that, I'm going to be there. Or even stuff like with weight loss timelines, you know, people like, okay, well, in six weeks, or in 12 weeks, I want to lose this amount of weight. And it's like, (laughs) the fucking world doesn't work like that. Like, the body doesn't work like that. Things don't work out like that. The future, it only fucking exists in your imagination. And you're trying to plan that shit out. Like you don't know what's going to fucking happen. You can't account for everything that's going to happen in the next couple of years, let alone like like what's what your life is going to look like. You, you can't even plan day to day, like let alone, you know, planning out where you're going to be in three months or five years or 10 years. It's like we, we cannot actually do that. And we fuck ourselves so hard in the ass when we try to set timelines for ourselves because we basically make a path for us to fail. When you have a timeline and it doesn't work out, which it fucking won't because you can't read the future, you already see yourself failing. Literally, like I see this every day with people that I coach. They set a timeline, they have these arbitrary goals and these numbers that they want to like hit by certain dates and then they don't hit them because life doesn't play out the way we want it to play out, right? Like it just doesn't. So you need to remove the timelines and the dates and the little like number goals. Get rid of those goals because being too goal oriented actually screws us over. And I know that's counterintuitive and I understand that there are benefits to goals and I just fucking spoke about having a big fuck off goal. However, if you have a timeline and you have specifics and you cannot ensure and 100% guarantee that you're going to be able to accomplish those, if you've missed the mark, if you fail, or even if you underestimate your ability and you shoot too short, then you, you fuck yourself as well. You have to remove some of those timelines and you have to have the mindset of I am willing to do whatever it takes for as long as it fucking takes that has to be your competitive mindset stop saying like oh I'm not here like it's been three months and I just I need to be at this point no you fucking don't you just have to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to get to where you need to go you need a direction you don't need certain things to tell you that like you've accomplished enough You just have to keep getting better and better and better. Even when you're fucking winning the CrossFit Games, you're still trying to get better. Right? Does that make sense? If we think that we have to just accomplish X amount, one, we're either going to fall short or we're not going to get far enough to accomplish what we need. Remove the timelines. Remove the little stepping stone goals. And know that you're in this for a long time and you're going to do whatever it takes. Okay, that's kind of where you have to be. And so if you're hearing that and you're like, I can't do this for, I can't do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. Like I have shit to do. I have other things in my life. Well, then (laughs) it's going to be hard to be the competitor that you possibly could be. You might be, you might be able to compete and you might be pretty good, but 
it's a chance that you could probably squeeze out more if you are willing to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. And hey, I'm not saying things don't change as well. Like here I am, like I'm not as fit as I used to be. Holy fuck no, I am not a competitor right now. <laughs> like you put me on a competition stage, like oh, good Lord, it would be scary. It would be a sight because stuff comes up, you know, things like a pandemic, they come up, they happen. And so, so things change and that's okay. Like, you know, I'm not in the same place as I was a few years ago, but you know, I, I still understand that if I'm going to apply myself, I'm going to apply myself kind of indefinitely, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to get that thing. So that, that has to sort of be the mindset. Get rid of the, the arbitrary timelines with any fucking goal, man. Like a direction is so much better than like a, I need this thing. I need to be from point A where I am and I just need to get point B. It's like, hey man, like if you, if you have a weight loss goal, rather than being like, okay, well, I'm 80 kilos right now. I want to be 70 kilos or 75 kilos or 78 kilos, even if it's fucking two kilos, I don't care. Rather than going, okay, I need to lose two kilos. Go, I need to lose weight. I'm going to do what I need to do to lose weight. And I'm just going to try and lose weight. That's the direction, right? So everything in your life, your food, your training, your stress, your sleep, that has to fall in line with the direction that you're trying to go in. And that helps you fall in love with the process. <laughs> fall in love is a funny way to express it, but you have to be able to fall in love with the process and become process oriented instead of results oriented and goal oriented. You must focus on the process and the effort over the outcome because it, it will really mess you up if you're constantly looking at the thing that you want, the goal and where you're at and how far you've got to go. It's like if you're looking at that mountain, that lofty mountain that you're trying to climb and you're constantly looking to the peak of the mountain, it's going to feel like it's a really long way away, a really long fucking way away, you know, our eyes fuck us and they're just like, holy shit, that's so far. I've got so far to go. Oh my God. It's just, it's so uphill. <laughs> it's so steep. <laughs> but if you just look down at your feet and you just watch every step that you take, you're like, oh, hey. I'm another 10 steps up. Hey, we've just done fucking a couple of Ks. Huh, this is fucking, let's just keep going. Let's just chip away. So you've got to have that perspective. The ability to know that your goal is really fucking big, but you're just going to take it one step at a time. And you're just going to focus on one foot in front of the other. That's all you can control. Don't look at the peak. Know that that's where you're going. Know that that's the big scary goal, but stop staring it down, trying to get there looking at it like weight loss looking at this bathroom scales it's not fucking helping you lose weight you got to go and do the things that put you in the on the direction or on the path that you want to go in okay something else that i'm going to talk about is racing and training a really cool result of meeting with swifty matt swift was he was like you need a training partner and at the time, the young people at the gym that I'd previously been competing with had kind of all moved on. Like the gym had kind of dispersed a little bit. And he was like, you need to find a training partner. And we actually sat there brainstorming for like 20 or 30 minutes, just being like, well, what about this person? What about this person? Okay, what about this person? What about this, this girl, this guy, whatever. And they're all just kind of local like competitors that maybe they're, maybe they're, I don't think anyone was a games athlete in, in Brisbane at the time, but it was like, ah, oh, there's just a couple of groups, people in different gyms that were pretty competitive. And he was like, nah, like, nope, they're, they're not, they're not 
they a lot of them actually didn't have the right attitude that he was looking for like I couldn't figure out why he kept saying no to these people I was like this is this is a good person <laughs> I'll train with them he's like no <laughs> what about this person he's like no I was like what why not and what I realized is it, it wasn't enough to be a good athlete it had to be someone that applied themselves mentally as well it had to be someone that had the attitude of a competitor that took risks in training that pushed themselves beyond their comfort zone that took it fucking seriously as well right there were a lot of athletes and there still are athletes that kind of take it as a joke like don't really try you know like they're scared of really applying themselves and you can even hear it in their language um like there's so much just I mean in Australia in general like self-deprecating humor it just fucking hurts me but a lot of those athletes kind of talked about themselves in that way like they weren't really serious it was just a joke and like you kind of knew that really they wanted it but they just weren't ready to like admit it because they didn't want to fail right like that's kind of what's under the surface with everybody but he was like, you got to have someone with the right attitude. Um, and that's a really important piece of the puzzle. You know, I say like your environment is everything and, and being around the people that have the same goals as you and, and that apply themselves and, and that are better than you. Like you need someone to push you and someone you can chase rather than you being the leader of the pack. Like you need someone else to set that bar and for it to be above your reach. That's the ultimate training environment. But beyond that, even if you can't find people that are better than you, you need people that take this thing seriously you need people that fucking care like that's what it is you need people that care so ultimately it was the coolest thing ever but Swifty called me up the next day and was like hey I've got news for you I was like yeah he was like I got you a training partner it's me I was like oh my god (laughs) I was like okay he was like yeah I'm I'm gonna start training again And so he'd kind of like, I think he's retired about three times at this point. This was after the first time he'd retired. He'd won the games a couple years prior in the master's category. And he was like, okay, I'm coming out of retirement. We're going to train together. So for a whole year, I got to go to CrossFit Brisbane and I got to train with Swifty and it was fucking awesome. And he taught me how to race. This is where the famous leaderboard began. So I had a leaderboard and if you follow me on Instagram, you will have seen it. And it tracked who won the workout. So I had... A column for myself and a column for Swifty and every time you want to work out you'd get a you'd get a score you'd get a mark a point I guess and uh, we did that for like the whole year from from the end of one open to the beginning of the next open and pretty happy to say that I won but it was fucking close because Swifty is an animal and it worked out really nicely actually that he was a highly competitive masters athlete and I was a borderline competitive young female open athlete it just the the level of our fitness worked out perfectly it matched really nicely so we were able to attack each workout and we would always be right next to each other so we could race every fucking time if you ever sandbagged a workout you were guaranteed to lose so it wasn't like anyone was significantly better than the other person to the point where like they didn't have to try and they just win it was like you had to try to win every time you wanted to win you had to go all out you could never pace it you could never go in and be like oh, I'm just gonna go at like this percent and I'm just gonna cruise and and maybe I'll pick up at the end it was like no you had to push every workout to 
to your failure point and beyond. Like you had to risk everything to beat that person. In my case, to beat Swifty. I had to, be, like I had to race him every time. And what happened is I learned a lot about myself, myself and my ability to race. I was not very good at being competitive. Like I was not very good at losing. I wasn't very good at being in the middle of a workout and seeing someone get ahead of me. I would start to slow down when I felt like, it was almost like I felt like I knew how it was going to end. If I saw someone get ahead of me, I was like, oh, well, they're pretty good at these movements. I'm not that very good at this stuff. Like, I'm not that fit. Like, I'm pretty strong, but I'm not that fit. And like, there they go. Like, I know they're good at this stuff. And like, oh, and I also feel tired today. You know, it was like, as soon as I saw someone get ahead of me, my self-talk in my brain would immediately play down my ability and my, my, uh, my just capacity to push like it was like you undermine yourself so hard that I basically was predicting how the rest of the workout was going to go before I'd even gotten close to the end it, it was I what's the term I'm trying to think of uh you know when you like it's the you predict something and then it happens fuck me it's going to come to me at like 3 a.m in the morning Anyway, doesn't matter. Ah, self-fulfilling prophecy. Boom. That's it. The self-talk became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it was a fucking asshole. And it kept on happening to me. And I would have these really big emotional highs and lows. If I won, I was like stoked. And then if I lost, I was like, man, don't even talk to me. It was bad. So... I, I learned that about myself, that I wasn't very good at racing and, and thinking that I was going to lose because I would just kind of lose on purpose in that po at that point. And, and even though it was subconsciously on purpose, like it wasn't like I was like, ah, I'm just going to lose. I'm just going to stop. Like I'd, I'd finish the work and I'd still get a good workout and I'd train hard. But I just realized that I was undermining myself so much with my self-talk and how how much I enjoyed competing based on whether I was winning or losing. So I basically felt like I only liked training or competing when I was winning and I didn't know how to enjoy it when I wasn't winning. So a shift had to happen where I had to stop seeing all of my failures. So one, I had to stop looking for the ways that I was losing or the ways that I was failing or the ways that I wasn't doing enough or the ways that I wasn't winning. Um, and then two, so I also had to, it was the self-talk and then also taking the risks and knowing that, hey, it's okay to take risks and, and fail in training. Like that's something that you actually need to do. Like you need to fail in training rather than failing out on the competition floor. So the self-talk and training, let me get into that because that's a really significant part of this whole thing. The self-talk and training, it like your brain is probably the most powerful muscle that you have. And I have a lot of conversations with women around like, ah, oh, how should I train around my period? Like, what is, what do I need to do? And like, how, do, how is this going to impact me? And like, and while I know that my period does impact me, it certainly does. I will not deny that. I've been observing my period for more than five years. I know what happens during training. I know exactly what to expect. I know how it's going to play into whatever I'm doing for that session. I will still say this there are two things that impact me more significantly than my period. That is sleep and that is where I am at mentally. And sleep will often impact where I'm at mentally. So those two kind of go hand in hand. But I could be having the fucking worst period in the world 
And if I feel good mentally and I like the workout and I feel like I'm going to win, I will thoroughly enjoy racing and pushing myself beyond my limits for that workout. Your ability to push yourself mentally will overcome any physical disadvantage or physical limitation or physical thing, fucking shit, hormone, whatever the hell is going on. Even if you are also tired, your brain will overcome that. And I love the phrase, I'm going to bring up David Goggins again, but I love the phrase that when you think you're done, you're only 40% done. And if you can unlock that part of your brain, you're going to be able to access so much more of your potential. So self-talk is a really big part of that. Um, We tend to look for all the things that we're bad at because it means that we can kind of create this narrative around why we're losing, right? And like you create this this loop. Um, And I, I spoke about these loops last solo episode where it's like you have a thought that produces a feeling that produces a behavior or an action and the action produces a result or evidence. And then that evidence feeds back into your thoughts. And so we have this loop. So if my thought is, oh, I'm losing and it's because I'm not very good at this workout. My feeling is I suck and I feel bad. And then my action is I start to slow down. Like I stand back because I feel like shit and I'm like, I'm not very good at this. So I I don't, I I can't push. I'm not very good. Like it literally means it takes away my ability to even push and try because it's like, even if I try, I suck. I'm not very good. And then the result is that I continue to suck at that thing because I don't push and get better. <laughs> or I just lose, right? I lose that workout. And so then I have more evidence for me sucking. And you can make those into very, very small loops of like tiny minuscule things where it might be a specific movement that you're bad at. Um, and so you have the thought, creates the feeling, produces the action, and that gives you the result. So you might have a feedback loop around a movement that you're not very good at. Like for me, running running oh man oh god the mental battle that is running okay so I have feedback loops with running and then you can even have that bigger feedback loop of like how I see myself as an athlete on the on the whole with regards to what I spoke about last time with being fit versus me being strong and perceiving myself as a strong athlete that wasn't particularly fit and so it produced me produce an athlete that was strong but not particularly fit because I I did all these things that were in line with that thought loop that that feedback loop so the way that you think about yourself and the language that you use in your brain as well as the way that you talk about yourself to other people it will significantly impact your performance the way that you apply yourself your behavior everything that you do like everything we do is this is it stems from our thoughts like it, it like I cannot exaggerate this enough I cannot exaggerate this enough that's not the right English you know what I'm trying to say emphasize it was the other e-word I cannot (laughs) emphasize this enough but like though your brain is so motherfucking powerful you have to take advantage of it and as contrived as it can kind of feel sometimes when you're starting to change your self-talk and as stupid as it is like saying things like mantras or affirmations or try to like talk back to that voice in your head it's like it feels kind of funny and silly but it actually works really fucking well um so it's really important to know that sometimes it feels a bit odd but it, it will work it will still change how you're thinking so learning to change your self-talk is really important And then the other piece is having evidence that you are actually doing well because what happens is because we tend to see all the things that we're failing at, we tend to write off, you know, I could write off a whole session and be like, oh, I had a bad day. 
And what I ended up having to do, I had this exercise where I would start to look at the warm-up, the workout, uh, the warm-up, the, the skill or the lift, the workout, and then the cool-down or the accessories. And each day I would have to go through and put a red light, yellow light, or green light. And essentially a red light was like no effort, poor, poor result. Yellow light was like moderate or average, effort, average result. And then green was like 70% plus. I did really well. And what happened was the first week that I did this, it was like fucking all red, <laughs> red and yellow. I might have one or two green bits in there. Uh, and I went back to Swifty's wife. She was actually a sports psychologist. She does a lot of work with like Olympic level swimmers and stuff. She's fucking a badass. Um, and, and she 100% was like Swifty's secret weapon. <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. Actually, I think he'd probably say that. Um, but I went back and I showed her and she was like, <laughs> okay. Okay, buddy, we need to start looking for the evidence that you've actually put in a lot of effort. And what happened was I had this flick in my brain where any time that I felt like I'd not done well was often because of circumstance or things that were going on. And I would never factor them in. I would always just blame myself and be like, I'm shit. I suck. I'm the fucking worst athlete in the world. And it was very much like a, why me? Like, who do you think you are? Like, what the fuck are you doing? You're not that good. Like, come on. And that was kind of like where all this stuff was coming from. And anyway, when I started looking for evidence that I was actually doing well, what happened was, an example of this was, I went in on a day that I was feeling tired and shitty. And I did a workout and it didn't go that well. Um, and I was doing some handstand push-ups. I actually put my neck out, like just, you know, one of those sprains where it's like, I can't fucking turn right now. That was, uh, that was what I did on that session. And I did the workout anyway. And I actually, I got a pretty good time, but I just, I felt like balls. And I was like, oh, that wasn't a very good session. I just, I feel like crap. And um, <laughs> Wendy was like, hey buddy, okay, you didn't feel good. You had your period, whatever the fuck was going on with me at the time. You put your neck out and you'd had a really late night the night before, so you came in tired. Okay, but in spite of all of those things, you showed up to training. You trained. You even fucking put your neck out and you still did the workout. And you finished that entire session and you actually did pretty fucking well in that workout. You beat the other trainer. So were there, well, like, is that a loss or is that a fucking win? Because if you take into account the circumstance or the context, then all of a sudden it's actually not the uncontrollables that dictate whether or not the session was good or bad whether or not I was tired, whether or not I had other things going on, whether or not I had my period, whether or not I put my neck out, that stuff had previously been dictating whether or not I called that a good or bad session. So suddenly those uncontrollables were almost the things that told me it was a good session because suddenly the worse the circumstance, the worse the uncontrollables, the worse the environment, the fact that I was still there showing up and actually training and doing a session became even more significant and even more powerful and required even more effort. And that was when I started to really identify, you know, I said earlier, it's like, don't be results oriented, be, be uh, process oriented and, and focus on effort, not the outcome. And learning to look at that made me realize that I was using the outcome to tell me what, what was going well or what was, wasn't going well rather than my effort 
And so when I started looking for the evidence and I changed the way that I was talking to myself, I could start to hone in on the effort. And the effort became my measuring stick for success. And even to this day, like I know a good session or a bad session based on kind of my effort. It doesn't really matter how well I've done because my effort's going to be uh, determined by where I'm at at that point and, and what's happening for that day. And your effort for each day will, will change based on like what's happening for that day. You can only do your best based on that day, you know. Um, so that that became the measuring stick. And that was, I suddenly felt the weight of training lift off my shoulders because the training wasn't the hard part. It was how I berated myself internally that was the hard part. It was how I beat myself up for not being good enough, for not performing well enough, for not not accomplishing the result that I wanted. And suddenly when I removed that and I looked at the effort that I was putting in and I looked at the evidence that I was showing up and I was doing the things and I was being the athlete that I wanted to be, right? It didn't matter what the results were. It mattered if I was assuming the identity of the person that I wanted to be. Even if I wasn't getting the same fucking Fran time or Deadlift 1RM as Katrin David's daughter or fucking Annie Thor's daughter or as Kara Saunders or Tia Claire Toomey, that didn't matter. All that mattered was that I was doing the same thing thing as them I was showing up the same way as them I was putting in the same effort but the effort was just relative to who I was as an athlete that was the important piece and finding that evidence in day-to-day sessions changed everything for me and that made me become a way more positive athlete and not in the sense that I was just like happy and stoked on life and every session was amazing. It was just that I suddenly saw through my bullshit and I saw through all of the the negative self-talk and all of the ways that I would turn good effort into something bad. And I would, like I said, undermine all the things that I was doing and like suddenly I, I guess undersell myself to my fucking self. <laughs> that was um that was huge, and I still think about that now. And it's like, it, it doesn't become something that's automatic. You know, the way that you talk to yourself or the way that you feel about things. It's a really gradual shift, and it's a really slow process. And I still work with it now. There's still two voices in my head now. I have the original voice, which is the the fucking just. <laughs> just the person that's just horrible that just you know it's the it's the voice that the part of your brain that wants you to stay safe produces right it's that voice that wants to keep you within your comfort zone it wants to keep you doing what you're already very efficient at it doesn't want you to learn new things it doesn't want to want you to break patterns it doesn't want you to push beyond what it feels is safe it doesn't want you to go outside of your comfort zone so I have that voice And that's the very reactive, responsive voice. I don't really have a lot of control over that voice. That's the voice that just comes up. And now I have a new voice. This is the voice that when I feel uncomfortable will say, good. It will say, lean into it. See how long you can tolerate this. When I'm saying, man, this hurts, the new voice will say, really, does it hurt? Or is it just uncomfortable? Are you just breathing heavy? Can you tolerate it? Can you continue to tolerate it? How much can you tolerate? Are you okay? You're still moving. You're still doing it right now. It can't hurt that bad. You're thinking. So, you know, fucking, (laughs) you can't be in that much pain if you're thinking. That's that second voice. And that's the voice that allowed me to become competitive and get me through not just hard workouts and 
big lifts and hard sessions and hard weeks, but get me through years of training. Whenever I doubted myself, I could suddenly recognize that that was the part of my brain or the part of me that was looking for why I was shit and why I would fail and why I was no good. And I knew that that was the part of the brain that was not helping me. It was only hindering me. And it wasn't true. A lot of those thoughts are simply not true. And they're trying to suck me back into my old ways almost, you know, like they're not the thoughts of the person that I wanted to be. So when I learned to be aware of what those thoughts were, where they were coming from, and I could respond or talk back to myself, that was that was, that was huge. And I am so grateful for that lesson because I still apply it today. You know, I catch myself out. I think something that's important to know is, and I had this conversation with Rob Forte. So I did a year with Swifty, which was the year that I learned to race. I learned how to apply myself in training. I learned how to look for evidence of my success. I just learned how to be like a fucking consistent athlete. And I learned that, that if I showed up and I put an effort, I would get better. And I was, I learned to trust that process. After that, I moved to Melbourne and that was when I started training with Rob Forte um, and and Swifty and I had been doing his programming prior when we were training together. So it was just kind of a natural evolution. But a conversation that I had with Rob, and this is something that you'll see that's consistent across, you know, any book that you read on mindset, any book that you read on sports psychology. Um, But he put it into really good words. The question that I'd had for him was, hey, like, how do you respond to those really negative thoughts? Like, I, I just like they keep coming up and I'm having a really hard time with it. How do you deal with that negativity or how do you deal with self-doubt? I think that was what the question might've been actually like something around self-doubt. And then the other thing was around like, um, how do you push yourself when you don't want to push yourself and you can feel yourself slacking off or sandbagging. And something that he said was those thoughts are going to come up. Like no one, no one, is exempt from negative thoughts or their brain simply responding in a way to keep them safe. Everybody will have to deal with those thoughts at one point or another. It doesn't matter if you are the best CrossFit Games athlete in the world or the worst CrossFit athlete in the world. Everybody will experience negative thoughts to some degree. The difference is whether or not you listen to them. So I think that if you get into caught in this trap of trying to figure out how to stop them, it actually makes it worse because then you feel shit because they keep coming up. The reality is, is you have to allow them to be what they're going to be and say what they're going to say and make you just come up when they're going to come up and know that you get to then at that point choose what your next step is, what your next action is. You choose how you're going to respond to that. And when you get to the point where there's that gap, there's that distance between thought and response, that's when you make the choice to keep going or to slow down or stop, right? So initially the impulse to um, this hurts or my heart rate's really high is like, I should slow down or I should take a break or I should grab a drink of water or I should get some chalk, right? Like that's the initial response. Like, oh, I should, I should have a quick breather and then I'll get back into it. That's the safe thought. That's the part of your brain that's trying to keep you in your comfort zone. So what he said is when those thoughts come up and assume and know that they will come up. It's not if they come up. It's not how you stop them from coming up. It's knowing that they will come up and they will try to protect you and they will try to keep you from accomplishing what you want to accomplish. When they come up, 
you have to respond to them and say, and something that he uses is, thanks, but I don't need that information right now. Thanks, but I don't need you right now. I hear you, but that's not what I'm going to do right now. So it's really the act of responding, right? The act of talking back instead of just listening to that brain, that part of your brain. Um, and just knowing that it's going to come up, like it's going to come up. You cannot avoid it. No one can. And it's going to come up. And it's really how you choose to respond. So once you're aware of that voice coming up and separating yourself out from that voice, right, it's just a part of your fucking brain, then you can choose what you're going to do afterwards. Are you going to lean into it? Are you going to make sure that you don't respond to your heart rate going fast by slowing down? Are you going to stop every time that happens or not? Because you've got the choice not to. just depends on how much you're willing to continue to be in the state, you know? Like, I think that was a really significant moment of just, like, realizing that you do have a choice. Everybody has a choice. And the best athletes consciously make the choice to be uncomfortable as fuck. So that's, um, that's the self-talk. That's the mindset. I have a couple more things for you guys. Um, so hold on. Stick with me if you can. Um, when you're competing, I've talked about being confident because what we had on the floor as an advantage as a team back in 2015 is that we were, we were competitors. Like we were confident competitors and we were happy competitors. So I'll just leave you with this on that last piece is how are you or, or how happy are you versus how stressed are you when you compete? Do you enjoy it? Do you freak out? Do you get really reactive? Are you quite emotional? How are you when you compete? Um, that's going to give you a lot of insight into your brain and, and what's happening and how you're responding to yourself. And you want to be a happy competitor. A great quote that I saw from, uh, I want to say maybe Jacob Hepner someone with a J name, was uh, a happy competitor is a dangerous competitor. And I think that that's like, that's the truth. That's it. That's kind of the secret sauce. If you could simplify it all down. Okay. The last thing, this is the last little bit. Um, and I have to say, I was listening to George Mumford on Tim Ferriss and he's like a, um, I guess he's like a, a life coach or like, I, I don't think he's a sports psychologist, but he's someone who hangs out with like the basketball players over in the US and is a fucking badass and helps people mentally with their mental fucking game. So something that he said that was like, it, it was like, it just rang, rang so true for me in my experience is that you have to have such an incredible amount of self-awareness but non-judgmental self-awareness you have to as an athlete be able to be critical of yourself but not judge yourself okay and what that means is that when you make a mistake in training when something goes wrong when there's something that you fuck up you can reflect on that take the lessons and apply them to the next session rather than reflect on that, dwell on it, use it to build a narrative or a story about who you are as an athlete, 
and suddenly take that athlete into the next session, right? There's two different things happening there. So self-awareness, where you are critical and objectively observing what's happening and you're witnessing yourself and you're using that information as almost data to help you improve for the next time is critical to being a good athlete, to being competitive and just to pursuing excellence for anyone. You have to be able to be hyper aware of everything that you're doing, every little decision you've made in any workout that you're doing and anything that you do because you're chasing a goal whether it's in work or with your family or relationship, whatever the fuck it is. You have to be aware and be able to observe all the steps that you're taking. And when there's a fuck up, be able to go, okay, that's really interesting that that happened. What could I do differently next time? This is a question I ask my clients, whether they're athletes or my nutrition clients, all the time. What could you do differently next time? I don't give a fuck how badly you mess this up, this workout, this meal, whatever. I don't care how bad it was. All I need to know is what lessons you learned from it. What lessons did you take from that fuck up that's going to help you not fuck up as bad next time? I'm not saying you're not going to fail again, right? I'm saying I need you to take that information that you've gained from failing this time and figure out how to fail better next time because you've learned something that's really important whenever you've fucked up. And if you don't take that information and try and figure out a new strategy to overcome that problem that you faced, you will constantly repeat the same behavior and not learn from it, not grow from it, not evolve. You have to take the information, figure out a new strategy and test that new strategy next time. Next time that problem comes up, don't pretend it's not going to come up again, it fucking will. So get the new strategy, test it out, learn from that mistake, learn from that fuck up, learn from the, the new mistake, the new, the new experience. And bit by bit, you refine the way that you apply yourself, your technique, your strategy, your mindset, the way you talk to yourself, the, the way you respond to a mistake. Let me give you an example. Double unders. <laughs> Motherfucking double unders. Double unders tell me so much about a person <laughs> and how well they regulate themselves and their emotions like literally how well regulated someone is or how reactive someone is, man, you get them to do like 50 to 100 double unders <laughs> multiple times in a workout. Like I will very quickly be able to pinpoint the people that are reactive people. If you scream and get upset and get angry and get frustrated and then they don't fucking work and then you keep fucking tripping up, you just want to fucking throw your rope. <laughs> if that's you, you have some serious work to do, my friend. <laughs> and let me tell you, that was me. I've done that before in double unders. I've done that before in weightlifting. I've done that many, many times in weightlifting. If I haven't been able to hit a certain weight, I will try and pick that bar up fucking 50 times and I will fail every single goddamn time and scream and swear and have a full-blown tantrum. <laughs> That's something I've done. People have witnessed this. It was... <laughs> It was it's probably something I kind of regret, you know. I'm like, ah, oh, that when I think about that, you know, that just makes my insides kind of squirm. 
I've had those meltdowns and it's when you become really flooded with emotion and you you don't have a way to work with the emotion or work through it. You don't have steps to take. So with double unders, something that I do now, and this is something I actually sat down one day, I think it was before a workout, and I just visualized, hey, when I fuck up, because I know I will, when I fuck up, what can I try to do to get straight back on like get my head straight back in the game what can I do because every time I get pissed is another second or two with my head out of the game right you scrunch up your face you yell you become super audible it's you like very theatrically theatrically like tapping out for a second mentally tapping out You are out of the game at that point. Like noise, to me, when I hear someone making noise, it's them audibly complaining as a signal to their peers that they are suffering and struggling and trying to ensure that people know that they are suffering more than other people around them so that they know that when they fucking lose, it's because there was some kind of suffering and some kind of struggle going on. Right, like just kind of sit on that and think of that a little bit. Whenever you hear someone making an audible noise when they're training, and I am guilty of this. I'm not saying I don't do it, but it's always a signal of I am suffering, I am struggling, this is really hard. Know that this is so hard, it's going to be hard for me to do well in. Right, that's the degree to which people will use that. It is a signal to our peers. I don't fucking yell and scream on my own that often. I've done it. (laughs) I've definitely done it, but not that often. I mostly do it when I'm around other fucking people. It is a signal. We're just fucking animals, okay? So double unders is a great example of that. And when I sat down and thought about, hey, rather than thinking, I'm going to try and go, I'm broken, or I'm going to do this in 20s, or I'm going to do this in 10s, or I'm going to do 50 and 50. I was like, I'm just going to do as many as I fucking can. I'm going to try, like that was, that was the other important part of it. It wasn't just about like when I fuck up and just expecting yourself to fuck up. Like it's not that. It's I'm going to do as many as I can. And when a mistake happens, what will help me get straight back into it? And for me, what it was is when I trip, I get my rope back behind my feet in as few steps as possible. I keep my face fucking calm. It is a fucking zen motherfucker. My face will not show any sight of frustration. I will not let it. I will not signal anymore when I do double unders to other people that I'm fucking annoyed. doesn't matter how angry I am inside. I will not respond. I keep my face calm. I get my rope behind me in as few steps as possible. So literally, it usually requires a flick of the rope and one foot coming back over because I, I don't know how I do this. I always trip with like the rope on one foot, not both. So I step with the other foot over. The rope's flicked behind me, so it's straight. I take a quick breath and I start straight up. That's it. Keep my face calm. Get the rope into position. Go. Three steps. Three very actionable steps doesn't really require me to think about anything. I just know when I fuck up, that's what I do. That's my system. When I lift, I have a system. Now, I only fail three times before I tap out. The three strike rule. 
I don't practice failing anymore. And what's happened subsequently is that I don't fail as often. I practice successful lifts. And if I fail more than three times, I don't fail again, right? Like the number of times that I fail lifts now is basically zero because I have this rule. When I set up, I have the same routine every single time. When I miss a lift or I fail a lift, I pick what was the thing that went wrong, what's the information that I can change for the next time that I do the lift, and I give myself a cue. Then when I set up for the lift again, I think of that cue. Usually it's jump more, jump and punch, or jump under the bar, whatever it is to get me to extend more. Finish the shrug. I love the finish the shrug one, and you'll always see me. Like if you go back and watch Torian Pro, the one where I finished the ladder, like that was an epic lift for me. I really loved that. I knew I was going to make it. Like I went to knowing I was going to finish that ladder. You can literally watch me do every single lift exactly the same. Even the lightest bars where I didn't need to worry about it, I lifted it as if it was the heaviest bar because I wanted to practice that routine. I wanted that ritual. I go up to the bar. I set my feet in position so that I know they're lined up with the markings on the knurling of the bar. I stand at the bar and I shrug my shoulders and in my brain I'm going, finish the shrug. That's the cue. And then I put my right hand on. I put my left hand on. I take a breath, I lock my shoulders, eyes up, and I lift. That's the routine that you will see me follow in every single lift. And that's what I visualize when I lift. That's the same thing with double unders. When I fuck up, I have a routine. Like all of these things that I know I need to be almost automatic on, I have a routine. And that's something that you need with regards to when you've got information when you've been observing yourself and you've been just noticing and accepting what's going on and you extract the useful pieces, which by the way, when you fuck up, that's really useful, especially when you do it in training. That is like, that's crucial information. If you fuck up and you don't take that information and you just go like, all right, that was a bad day. I'm just going to try again tomorrow. Like, I'll just, I just won't fuck up. I'll be perfect from now on. It's like, man, that's, <laughs> that's useless. You just threw away that opportunity to learn. But when you take that information and you change something that you do because of it to help you be better and to help you overcome or to help you face that challenge again the next time in a better way that allows you to keep moving at a faster pace, you're you're immediately, you're literally going to be faster. Like I can't tell you how much quicker I got with double unders when I learned to stay relaxed, get into position with the rope and just go. It's, it's literally like a two second process. And I do so many more reps now because I don't stand there and get pissed off and like, and make a big deal out of it. Right. It's like, man, use the information to refine yourself. Stop expecting yourself to never fuck up and get pissed off. If you do assume you're going to fuck up and, and take that, take that data change what you're doing. So the self-awareness is really important. You have to observe your experience in a non-judgmental way where you are self-aware and critical, but you don't beat yourself up. It's like if you were the coach watching the athlete perform the workout and you figured out that every time they do burpees, they rest on the ground for two seconds. You're like, hey, you're going to save fucking 45 seconds off this workout if you just push straight off the ground on every burpee that you do so next time you do burpees stop resting on the ground as soon as your chest touches the floor come straight back up that's the only change i need you to make next time you have burpees and then suddenly your burpees for forever your workout for forever become faster like it's those little changes that are really significant over a long period of time 
And um, this is the thing that really grabbed me with the George Mumford interview. It has to be a paradigm shift. It can't just be a little bit of improvement. It can't be reaching for the goal that's right there. It has to be a paradigm shift that requires you to go all in. And I'm going to wrap it up there. I'm going to fucking park this car and dock this motherfucking boat. That's uh, my little bit on competing. And I hope that gives you a little insight. I feel like I've barely even begun to cover this topic. It's something I really enjoy talking about. And it's something I really enjoy working with athletes on. And the people that I've worked with, um, the people that tend to reach out to me asking questions, like the athletes that ask questions with me have gotten the most out of it you know it's like when people ask for help my favorite line is that asking for help is a power move because you get so much more information so with athletes that you admire with your coaches with anyone that is um, experienced I guess in competing or in this area or coaching competitive athletes ask them more questions you know I gave you an example from Rob Forte where I was like hey man I'm struggling with self-doubt and I'm struggling with like not knowing that I'm not pushing as hard as I should be, how do you deal with that? And he gave me such an epic response and it's just, it's stuck with me, you know? Ask for help and ask for information, get feedback. And if you're having a hard time observing your own workouts or observing yourself as an athlete, ask someone to give you a piece of something if they've been watching you that will help you improve. Ask other people what their strategies are for workouts and be like, okay, I might try that. I'm going to try and break this up into X and Y and see what happens. And then when you do that, be like, oh, okay, I was pretty slow compared to everybody else. I think I need to do a bigger set. Or, okay, I burnt out and I was doing single reps at the end. Maybe I'll do a smaller set at the beginning. And start getting and gathering information from every session that you do so that next time you go into a workout, you're going to have that information, right? You're not necessarily doing the same workouts every day or every week, but there are going to be elements that are the same. We do the same movements, you know, like there's a lot of movements in CrossFit, but there's a lot that are the fucking same. And you're going to see them in low volume or you're going to see them in high volume, you know, like handstand push-ups, pull-ups, like that, that stuff comes around pretty fucking regularly. So you should have a really good idea as an athlete how you approach high volume pull-ups, how you approach high volume handstand push-ups. What do you do with rope climbs? When you feel tired on rope climbs, do you check the clock and see how long you rest for? Or do you just stand there until you feel ready again? Can you rest 10 seconds and be ready to go again? Have you timed that? Can you make it, does it have to be 20 seconds? And are you working to try and make that 15 seconds? Like where are you getting your information and how well are you observing yourself? If you're just getting your information from how you feel, you're probably not getting better. If you're actually observing yourself and you have really good self-awareness and you're being a critical thinker when you're looking at your own performance and you're making notes of it, you're going to get better and you're going to get better fucking fast. That's really it for me. Um, you know what? With the whole thing on being self-aware, something that will help, this is a tangible piece of feedback for you guys. Have a training journal and actually write in it how that workout went and things you would do differently for next time. Uh, what I got to with my training journals, I have about five of them. I'm literally looking at right now. I would uh, have the date at the top of the page. I would write out the training and I'd just fill in the scores. I wouldn't necessarily put in like what the strategy was. I would just put in what I would do differently next time. Like, hey, if you have 50 push-ups next time, I want you to do one big fuck off set and then break it down into sets of five. Um, whatever that was, you know, like just a little bit of like a takeaway. Um, 
and any cues for weightlifting. So any cues for the workout or for the weightlifting. Um, oftentimes, like if I've had a, ju- a coach or a judge or like Rob's been around me and he's given me some cues that I've really liked, I'll use that. The other thing that I really enjoy doing with my training journal is I would put my affirmation for the day or for the week at the top of the page. And that would be something that I would say to myself during workouts. A lot of them were the same. Like I'd use, I am doing it right now. Um, so like, you know, people are like, I can, and I will, I really liked thinking like I can, and I fucking am like, cause it's usually in the middle of the workout where I'm like, this is really hard. And it's like, yeah, but I can do it. And I, I am doing, it. I'm doing it fucking right now. Like you're in the midst of it. Like, you know, it's too late to back out now, buddy. Like you're already hurting. You're not going to hurt much more. It's just about tolerating this level of hurtness for a long time. That's kind of what it is. So, um, training, journal with notes with your own feedback for yourself with affirmations written in I really like writing things down it helps me to just transfer that magic stuff into my brain and and put it out and into the universe in a nice way so yeah that's something that can be really beneficial and it became a really great habit for me so if that's one thing that you do get your training journal and start making fucking notes about your performance about your strategies so that you can start to actually improve peace out peace and love I'll talk to you guys soon